This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, and we are live. And today I have a I have a really interesting guest, Mark Elling, Eglinton. Is that correct? Yeah, you got there. Eglinton. Eglinton. Okay. Um, Mark has uh, the unique or had the unique opportunity to interview John McAfee over an extended period of time to work on a book. And when I say unique interview or unique opportunity, I've actually interviewed John McAfee and I've heard other interviews with John McAfee and John didn't really stick around very much or have repeat interviews or continuous conversations I'd ever seen with anyone. He was very much like a dialed in. Okay. Thank you very much. I got to get a drink. Yeah. So, um, can you tell us about it? I know you've told us, uh, uh, you know, told the story a thousand times, but his personality is so interesting. I do find it fascinating how you actually landed the gig, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, good question. I mean, to start at the beginning, I I, I write books with people, whether it be John McAfee, whether it be musicians, and I, I'd, I'd always thought, this guy's interesting. Why has he never written an autobiography? So I just decided to ask him. I, I sent him a message on Twitter, and I said, John, would you be interested in writing an autobiography? And the answer came back almost immediately. How much would it cost me? And I, and I said, it won't cost you anything. It's just some time. And we had a bit of dialogue thereafter on Twitter messaging, and it kind of developed into a Skype situation because for anyone that doesn't know, that was the only way that John communicated in his latter years. He was only on Skype. And uh, he said to me, I'll call you tonight or we'll, we'll talk tonight. And I was driving at the time. And, you know, five minutes after he told me he'd talk tonight, he called me. And I was in the car <laughs> with my wife and here's McAfee on the screen of my phone. And uh, I just thought I just have no choice but to pull pull over and, and take this call because I thought he might never come back. Uh, so we pulled over and there was John and I was in a gas station. And he he was like he had all the time in the world. I was filling the car up with fuel and ready to go somewhere else. And John was fine to talk. So we talked for half an hour and eventually got him off. And from that point onwards, we had a good relationship. Uh, he said to me, I think you're the right guy to do this. He'd already seen some of my work, had sent him some work, and he'd seen that part of it. But I think he just wanted to see my face and to talk to me. And once he did that, we were off. And from there it began. We talked every day thereafter for several months. Now, when did you start and when did you stop? I think it was 2019 you started. At what point was it, was it cut off? What what? Yeah, it depends what you call cutoff. I mean, the first conversation was October 2019. Mm-hmm. And I would say the main bulk of the conversations were between then and April of 2020 when COVID hit. We did talk thereafter. Uh, we did have quite a few strained conversations thereafter, particularly towards the end of that summer. That's when our relationship kind of fell apart a little bit. But the bulk of it was done in those sort of five months between October 2019 and and when COVID hit. So that'd be April 2020. And he actually got COVID. And I tell that story in the book. Uh, he didn't say it was, but he did have COVID. There's no doubt about it. Okay, interesting. I interviewed him, I believe it was March 31st or April okay. 1st of uh, 2020. So right. almost right around that time. For sure. And one of the things we did talk about was COVID. He was mm-hmm. not a big believer in it. And 100%. he... Um, made a comment a lot. I have to be very careful because it's YouTube. Uh, I know you've done more interviews on rumble and that's a little bit freer to speak, but here I have to tap dance around and say things like beer bug and Fauci juice and other <laughs> fun terms to uh, dance around the uh, YouTube algorithm. But anyway, he was very hot at that time about uh, Medicare, Medicaid, giving X amount of dollars for every positive case that turned up in hospitals. And yeah. w- we got into that a little bit. So very interesting um, timeline wise. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, I don't mind saying he, I don't, don't know if he was skeptical about COVID as per se. I think he was skeptical about vaccines even then. 
And we didn't have a vaccine at that point. Uh, no. He did say, you know, if vaccines ever come out, don't don't touch them. I mean, that that was said. Uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that that was his opinion, and you know, that's in the book as well. Well, he's pretty skeptical of the government. Obviously, fiat currency, uh, very very big on crypto. I almost went down a rabbit hole with him on on crypto because I'm skeptical. So it's like a, it was a fun back and forth. Yeah, I mean, crypto was one of the subjects, uh, not to not to go off at a tangent, but it's one of the subjects mm. I didn't want to get down a rabbit hole on simply because I don't really understand it. It's not my world. And a lot of the people who are interested in McAfee and my sort of dealings with him want to know about that stuff. And that was just one of the dimensions of his world we never really discussed. Uh, I know he did a lot of interviews on crypto. He was on tons of podcasts doing it. That's great. Fantastic. And they're interesting. I listened to them, but we never really touched it. Uh, it was much more about him and his feelings and that kind of thing, which was uh, refreshing for me anyway. Now, to get to that, because, okay, for one, was he always in the Faraday cage that he kind of had set up? When no. You him? We, we, had a couple of, we had a couple of different locales. The first one, he was in bed. Uh no. Then he was in variations of being sort of half out of bed. Uh, then he was in this hotel room, which was obviously the Bitcoin hotel, as we know now. Uh, mm-hmm. And he'd moved from being inside the room out into the balcony. And you know, it, it was just a, a sort of shifting thing. But it was always a similar kind of setup. He'd be half naked, quite often drinking, always smoking, always with the sunglasses. It, it, was, it was familiar and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, looking at the screen reflected back in the uh, in the shades, <laughs> I remember that. But yeah, when I interviewed him, he was in that um, uh, sound treated little Faraday type of cage. Setup. Yeah, the panel sort of room. It was very strange. I'm not sure where that was relative to the other rooms, but yeah, I, I did see it. Yeah, I'm not sure either. He, he, you know, he was fully on the run at the time, so I didn't know, you know, what it was. For all I knew, he was on a boat, but it wasn't moving. Yeah, so it's hard to, you know, hard to gauge. But even if he was on a boat, he'd probably have a dock somewhere. So who knows? Yeah, exactly. Um, and we we kind of went back and forth on that. Did, he was an interesting character. Did you have to? I, I don't want to be rude because I admire the guy in a lot of ways, but he could put forth a bit of um, a narrative, if you will. You know, he's a storyteller. <laughs> he is always, always. Um, controlling the conversation so i'm curious how you dealt with that did you just kind of wait him out until he would start to drift into something else or how, how did you dig down because you really got some personal things in there yeah i mean try to remember how it went i think and on a general note i think that john was and it might just because it's me and it's my ego here but i i do think there was a commitment from john in the in, in these conversations he was having with me to be honest. And I think he wanted it to be, you know, he's toyed with writers before he's, he's sort of half written books before. I think he thought, okay, let, let's do it properly this time. Did feel like that. Uh, but you're right. He did go down rabbit holes. He did control conversations. I think I waited him out. And then the stuff that was just implausible, and there was a lot that was implausible. Uh, I pushed back on, I said, I just don't believe this. This sounds ludicrous or I, I can't see how this would happen. And either he would back up and re-explain what he just told me or he'd completely ignore it and carry on. But <laughs> I always I always challenged him. And that was one of the key, the sort of key points of the book was that in order for the book to work, I had to. Because if you just turn McAfee loose, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know what story you're getting. All you, all you know is that you're getting the story he wants to tell. I had to be the kind of voice of reason to some degree and say, okay, you built houses all over the world, some of which you never spent a single night in. That is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Explain why you did that. And in most cases, he could do it. On other occasions, it was a bit more strained and he got a bit tetchy. But you're right. I had to wait him out. And, you know, un, ungoverned McAfee would would just talk you into the ground. Right. And I, I haven't got through the whole book yet because I just – Got it. This is a pretty sure. quick turnaround, but um, I did find chapter six to be very profound, and that was uh, I forgot the name. Remind of me it. what chapter six is. No, I, I don't remember <laughs> the name of it. But essentially, it was about his time with AA. And yeah. um, I have a good friend who runs clinics and things like that, 
and I, I shared part of that with him, you know, to run it by him because it was, I feel like you got to something in there. I agree. And it, it actually is a, a lifelong aspect of it. And I think it contributed um, all the way to his death. And this is what my friend said is actually Mark Robert, who's my show partner on America's mm-hmm. Untold Stories. Yeah. He said, when you don't go to meetings, it ends with jails, institutions, and death. Mm-hmm. He's a textbook case. Yeah. And I don't know if you had an opportunity later in the book as well to explore that further. But a, a lot of the um, almost ego-driven behaviors and things like that could have been coming out of addiction. Yeah, I agree with that, and 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 John would John would have agreed with that as well. Uh, and and I'm glad you raised that chapter. I didn't remember actually what it was, what the subject was, but when you mentioned AA, because there was a line that he gave me on the build-up to talking about going to AA, where he described the kind of. I guess it was the nadir of his whole addictive process where he described himself standing on a street corner at night with a sort of cold emptiness blowing through the center of his being. And it, I found it painful to listen to, and I felt for him. And he was tearful telling me, and I, and I really got the impression that he was finding it painful to sort of revisit that. And this was 1985 or 84, I think. Mm-hmm. And... I think this was the moment where he realized that either he had to do something about his addiction or he literally would have died back back then. And I I identified the concept of loneliness to him. And he almost kind of put the the call down because he he knew I'd touched on something. I, I, I said, I think the theme of loneliness has run through your life one way or the other. And that's regardless of the fact that you've had many relationships with women, you've been around people, I said, you know as well as I do, you can be in as many in among as many people as you want. You can be uh, the most sociable person that you that you could possibly can be, but you can still be fundamentally lonely. And he was like, "You've got it." He said, "You can be in an auditorium full of people, but you are alone." And then he extended that and said, "We're all alone," uh, which was. I'm not sure I agreed with that, but certainly for him, I think I touched on something that was really fundamental to his existence. And uh, I'm just glad we got there because I don't think anyone else has. I don't think he's ever gone to that place before. And yes, he padded it out with some really great stories about some of the stuff that happened mm-hmm. in addiction. And that was pure McAfee. But I think those moments that we got the the standing on the street corner was something pretty pure. Yes. And he also had stated that he had not touched a drink or drugs until seven years prior. Mm-hmm. So assume it's 2019. What a coincidence. Seven years, seven, eight years prior worked out exactly to all the hell, all the craziness that went on when he was in, um, I forgot Belize. the name of Belize. Yeah. Uh, with the dogs, with with his neighbor. I mean, e- everything lined up in, in a lot of ways. Now, I'm not saying that, obviously, that the doc was a hit job. I mean, I had Carol Baskin on, and I do question some of the things about her, but I also know that they're making a, you know, a documentary. They don't go, well, she had a good relationship with her husband, and sad, he was gone, and obviously, yeah. you're not going to go with McAfee. He was a really rich guy, and he bought some property, and he manufactured stuff, and then then it was boring, then he left. Probably yeah, not going to do that. Doesn't sell quite so well, does it? <laughs> no, it does not. But the whole spiral seemed to be like, okay, every, all that darkness, I questioned, because he said, oh, I can take it, I can leave it, and it's like, no. I don't think so, because when I talked to him, he was drunk out of his mind. Mm-hmm. He admitted he was drunk out of his mind. He said, I take every drug in the world you know, into that. Every interview surrounding mine, and there's a whole bunch of them. I don't know if you noticed that they're all listed as John McAfee's last interview, <laughs> which is, a, I'm, 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 I'm still trying to figure out how he could have had a last interview a hundred times, but but somehow he did it, you know, and mm-hmm. it's McAfee, but I wonder if he was in a, a a bad place again. Well, I mean, he did the the typical addicts thing. It's you know, it's the I can stop at any time. I control this type of thing. And as soon as I hear somebody say that, 
you, you know that they control very little and that they're entirely controlled by their addiction. And John and John fell into that category. I think I think stress made John take drinking drugs. I think Belize was one of these situations where he was kind of cornered uh, by his own doing. I mean, he put himself in the jungle, uh, armed himself, interfered in local business, and found, made himself a pariah. All of a sudden, when the pressure came on, I think he he started doing drugs and drinking again. And I think the same was the same applied to being on the run and in hiding. All of a sudden, you've got the net closing in on you. I think he reached for that. I think that was the the, the trigger for him on all these occasions. Uh, because the years before Belize were pretty, I mean, with the exception of when his, his, his nephew was killed in the, the aero trekking accident, which actually made him go to Belize in the first place. The years prior to that, after when he left McAfee, were reasonably smooth sailing. I mean, granted, he had a yoga retreat and all that kind of thing, but there was no real stress in his life. It was it was all, I'll do what I want, I'll spend money, etc. There was no stress. When the stress came on, John drank and did, did drugs from what I saw. Yeah, I think he did have a his nephew had that accident, and then um, this is a weird thing with McAfee too, because there's always a question of assets or not. Mm-hmm. Now everybody's wondering at the end, and you know it, it came up, and you've talked about whether he had any money or not. In 2008, he had claimed that he lost everything, which was an interesting um, time period. And then you know magically he had 100 million again. So it's a I. I I know I don't know with him, and that that's what's I guess so fascinating about it is like, did he lose everything? Did he not lose everything? Did he, you know, um, get more money, or was he just kind of teetering at, at this point for a while? One thing's for sure: I don't think he lost everything in the financial crisis. I put that to him because that's something that's been out there. People said, "Oh, McAfee lost all his money in the financial crisis in 2008." Don't think that's the case. He, in fact, he argued that his investments were very safe and very uh, conservative. Uh, but what he did do around that time uh, and before that was build houses for twenty-five million dollars in Ecuador, however many million dollars in Texas, another one, another two in Hawaii. I can't even, rem- I couldn't even add it all up. Hmm. Uh, and um, you, you quickly go through a hundred million doing that. Uh, so I don't think it was a case that he lost it in the financial crisis. I just think he spent it. And some of these houses he never went back to. Some of them I'm not even sure he, he got the proceeds when they sold. I know for a fact that when he left his place in Colorado after the, the aero trekking accident, he gave a lot of things away. He didn't, I mean, there was a yard sale for some stuff. A lot of stuff mm-hmm. he just gave away and walked away. That was John. It didn't matter to him. These possessions, the, you know, the fact that he'd spent money on these things just didn't matter. If he was leaving, he was leaving. And if it meant leaving stuff behind, he did it. Like the motorcycle was an early in case Mexico. of that, right, in Mexico? It's a great story, but it is fairly typical of John. It, it just didn't matter. Well, he I'm, – I'm curious, too, okay, on the run, because you're essentially – your thought is that he, if not, was broke, pretty close to broke at the end. I think so. Was he living off of his celebrity, so to speak? Because, I mean, he had an underworld celebrity in addition to, obviously, notoriety all around. So, I mean, like, how did he afford to stay in Spain? How did he afford to do this and that? I know he told you something about having to dedicate the book to mm-hmm. someone he was staying with. So I'm thinking he might have had a couple of benefactors mm-hmm. in in the background, probably in the crypto world, a crypto yep. millionaire too, or yeah. something like I think- that. That was what I deduced as well. And that was a weird story because it came out of nowhere. We hadn't been talking for a couple of days. All of a sudden, he sent me this email with what was essentially a forward for the book, as you described, with this dedication to some guy that was unnamed. Uh, And I I kind of panicked at the time because we had a financial deal. I was like, wait a minute, is this guy getting money and I'm not type of thing? I didn't know what it was. And he he, he said, oh, relax. I'll all be fine. Uh, But yeah, I don't know who that was. Uh, But a lot of people said to me, McAfee had money. He had this much crypto and all that kind of thing. I know for a fact because we got into a conversation about some working money for me while I was writing a proposal at the time we were trying to submit it to publishers. Uh, he just didn't have anything to give me. I mean, he gave me some, but he didn't have much else. Uh, and he would have given me what he what he had. And what he did have, it took him a few days to get. I think he was quite a lot closer to the to to, to the bone than people think. Yeah, now all this gets into little clues. Now, uh, interestingly, uh, one of my um, uh, followers or my community members, I'm in Locals, uh, wrote in saying, 
that there was a controversy about the book and what he thought or didn't think and things like that. And it appears that Jana seems good with it. When I started looking up, uh, she complimented it and retweeted it and said, yep. you know, that he'd approve. Jen uh, McAfee, who honestly I hadn't heard of, but uh, I mean, uh, apparently he has 35 kids. So it's anything's possible, allegedly. Um, it's 47. Oh, 47. <laughs> I'm sorry. You missed 12. <laughs> um, a dozen off. What, what, what are you going to do? Um, anyway, um, uh, she wrote um, to an article or whatever, while little morsels of truth are scattered throughout, the book is filled with inaccuracies, exaggerations, and outright fairy tales. I don't think she's blaming you, though, because she continues, my father was a master manipulator who thrived on having this larger-than-life persona and the cult-like following it spawned. I was surprised that author Mark Ellington didn't did little to separate fact from fiction or even to call my father out on some of the most basic and verifiable untruths. Now I, I I'm not trying to pin you down on this. It's not a gotcha thing. I'm just, I, I don't know how you would necessarily know other, other than just going, okay, how in the hell could that ever happen with him? So how, how did you pin him down or, or did you? Well, first of all, as far as uh, John's daughter is concerned, I won't embarrass her by discussing the dialogue we've had between us. Uh, that, that's her situation. I understand how difficult it is for her to have a father like John McAfee uh, and the, the sort of tragic end that he had. Sure. But I understand that for her, there probably isn't an emotional or psychological win in this book. And that's just the way it is. There, there, there isn't. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, that's not something I control because, mm. as I've said to a few people that I've discussed this with, yes, I wrote the book, but ultimately the words are John's, you know. And, and I think it would be easy to say, oh, Mark Eglinton wrote that John McAfee had 47 kids. Well, I actually didn't. John said it, and I wrote it down. You have to separate the, the, the method from the, the, the people involved. And I get that that's complicated for some people to understand that, you know, you, you might look at a book with my name on the cover and say, well, Mark Eglinton's saying this and that. I'm not. I'm just recounting what I was told. But as far as pinning him down, uh, I, I don't think it's actually fair to say that I didn't challenge him on untruths. Because as I said to you earlier in this conversation, I knew going into it that I would have to. And there were several moments where we had some really awkward situations where I said, well, I don't believe you. And this is why. And he either pushed back or, or we talked it out, et cetera. Uh, and, it, and it was quite uncomfortable for both of us. So I think to suggest that I made little effort to sort of challenge him, I, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. And, you know, I know how it went and uh, we did do a lot of that, but there are some things, as you say, that simply aren't verifiable. I mean, they challenged the idea that he had, he had, he had a three-month drug overdose aftermath in St. Louis in 1972. Who knows? I mean, his daughter certainly doesn't. She was two. Uh, so, you know, John tells you the story. You write it down. You, mm -hmm. you adapt it for the, for, for, for the purpose that you're doing. Uh, and that's the way you go. But if you run, I mean, particularly when it came to Belize and the murder of his neighbor, I did challenge him very hard. And I did go back on a number of things that appeared uh, to contradict what, what was in the documentary you talked about earlier. But I think on balance, I got the challenging about right. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. That's a hard one to know. Um, I even, I, I, I interview body language experts and stuff all the time and things. Which one are you talking about? Belize. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. in Belize. Sorry. Well, the Greg fall. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, murder. And, um, I had him and, and, and he did show signs of deception in, mm -hmm. in the interview. Now it's really a hard one because, uh, having knowledge isn't necessarily saying that you did do it or didn't do it. So I'm not, I'm not going to go as far as that. And then there's the added thing of, the guy killed his dogs. The guy poisoned his dogs. How, however minor that uh, seems to others, and obviously it's not, um, there's no excuse for murder, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's remotely understandable if it did happen, if, if that makes sense. 
I, I don't know how to put that out there. <laughs> it's a hey, listen. You're on, you're on your own on that one, but uh, the range. No, I, know, I know what you're saying, but I mean that was. I said in the book, and it's in the latter pages, that when it came to Belize, if I had genuinely felt that I thought John McAfee was lying to me and that he did kill his neighbor, I would have closed the book, shut the files down and walked away from the project. And I would have done. If I if I genuinely mm. thought that he had done it and had lied to me. And this, I could only go on gut feeling. I could only it's go on what was in front of me and what the guy told me. And I'm not a body language expert. I just like to think I'm somebody who can read a person and, and take take on board what they're telling me. And I meant it. If I had felt that he was lying to me, I would have walked away. And I didn't feel yeah, that. Kind of. I didn't feel that. I thought he was telling me the truth. What the what the real truth was, I've no idea. Uh, that's a that's a separate conversation, what actually happened. But do mm. I think John McAfee shot Greg Gregory Fall? I don't think so. No, no, I never thought he did. No, no. way. Um, I, I think that if if it did happen, it was possibly one of his people, somebody he knew, and it could have been done on his behalf without his knowing. So there's a million things. You know, it, he could have had knowledge after the fact, and that's why I'm I'm trying to be very careful and say I'm not conclusively saying that he did that. In any no, 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 I, I know what you're saying. I mean, there was a lot of gangs of crossover and a lot of people who had scores to settle with different people that kind of crossed mm-hmm. over John's world at that time. Uh, and as you say, anything could have happened. But the one thing I don't think that happened was that he killed him. That, that's my opinion. And that'll stick with that one. Yeah, I don't. I definitely do not in any way, shape or form think he pulled a trigger no. and did that. Um, I don't think he had the personality to even do that. I don't know. I, you know, he's bombastic. He's a talker. I think I, I just I cannot I could not see him actually he has a darkness within him, but it's not that kind of darkness. Does that make sense? Of course. I agree with you. Okay. Um, And I'm curious too, you, you've uh, collaborated with like rock stars a bit. Mm -hmm. And is that what attracted you to McAfee? Is that he kind of was like a rock star in a different world? A little bit, a little bit. It's a good show. hadn't thought of it like that. Actually in reality, I mean, I've done rock star books. I've done sports type things, business stuff. I'm always looking to get away from what I've been, I don't want to say typecast, but you know, if you write half a dozen books with musicians in a row, people think, oh, there's a guy that writes music books. Nothing wrong with that. Could be worse. I could be could be doing a lot of other things. But I'm always looking for interesting people. And you're right, McAfee was kind of rock and roll. He was. Uh, and I and I was attracted to that. I was attracted to the danger of McAfee and the potential for absolutely anything happening not least that he would say to me at some point uh you're gonna cut you're gonna have to come and see us and i was like is that right and he says yep he said you will turn up at an airport you will meet a man who will be holding a newspaper in his left hand that man will hand you an airline ticket to who knows where i mean a blindfold (laughs) yeah it's james bond stuff and i was thinking well all right this is what you get into this for this is why you do this job uh, my wife was not so keen. She was like, well, wait a minute. You're not getting on any flight to anywhere without me knowing what's going on. But I mean, I can't deny that was attractive. As it happens, I never did that. But the fact that it was even suggested was really appealing. I can't I can't shy away from that. It was awesome. One thing you brought up, and believe it or not, there's a parallel to the rock star here, but I was looking at his time uh, in technology, he's out of sync actually, and it's it's very interesting to look at it because I was like thinking how he was working on the Univax. I, I, I'm in a technology background, okay, so I, I, that's why I'm, I can go down a rabbit hole. But I found it very fascinating that he preceded, like you had mentioned, asked him, uh, so is that like a C prompt? Yeah. And I was thinking, no, 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 this is before that, dude. And mm-hmm. and and it sh- and then he confirmed that, you know, as I was you know, listening to to the side, and I thought it was fascinating. So I decided I need to look it up because when I'm thinking rock star, but not a rock star, but in the tech world, you think Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get away from it. Well, I don't know if you know the Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Scott McNeely, or probably the big three. Mm-hmm. Um, they all were born within months of each other. Okay. And they were all born in uh, f- uh, 55, 54, somewhere in that range. I know that Steve Jobs and Bill Gates are born in 55. 
it was very interesting though. I looked up and McAfee was 45. Yeah. So you have, if you will, uh, like if we're going to do a rock star comparison, you notice that there's just a rash of deaths that are, they're kind of coming up because it's like, there's these clusters. Yep. McAfee was pre cluster though. He kind of was in there before Bill Gates, before Steve jobs and things like that. He, he was already programming and doing spook work before Steve jobs was working um, for the uh, Noah, I forget his name doing Pong. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that side, but yeah, I do. You're right. I mean, he he told me himself, this was the frontier. I mean, John Mm -hmm. was at the absolute tip of the spear of all of this. Uh, And these jobs that he was doing in the early days and Univac was just one of them. These were all, I mean, the story, I don't have, I don't mind telling this story a little bit. The one that I laughed most about was the, the NASA story where he ends up going in there and doing something for a weather satellite, uh, some programming. You know, they were getting data back from, I think it was a Tyros weather satellite or something like that. They got him in there. He wandered around New York for two days taking drugs and came back with this formula and said, right, this is what we do. And then he said, the thing is still cranking away today. Now, is it still cranky away today? Or was that just a good story? I didn't check. I just thought this is so cool that it could be. I'm just going to let it go. I think it could be because I didn't know. I don't know if you know this, but their airports is Windows 3.1. Right. Which came that. out in the early nine, like early 90s, late okay. 80s, early um, Windows. And and they can't get rid of it. That If you want to see where, where are the dot matrixes, go buy a car in America or look around airports and you'll see the dot matrix a paper like spitting out yeah so nasa keep in mind uh especially if it went up in a satellite well who's mm. going to go up there to do an upgrade yeah <laughs> it's kind of hard so technically yeah it, it could well have code that was written 40 50 years ago yeah still up there and especially very basic level because he was doing machine code i mean mm-hmm. the basic of the basic of the basic i mean it's like the c prompt was I don't know, 10 levels of abstraction yeah. above what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but th- that's an example of one of the stories that was just too cool to check. That sounds terrible. But, you know, the fact that this satellite is still cranking away with McAfee's code from 1960-whatever, I just thought, this is great. If it if it isn't, well, that's a different issue. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I loved all that stuff, and I loved his – his descriptions of how he approached all these projects in the early days where he basically decided that he would solve a problem within a couple of days, then do nothing for the remainder of the six month contract in Munich or (laughs) Rio de Janeiro or wherever it was. And that gave him latitude. And when he was talking to me to branch off into these crazy stories, and I won't ruin it by telling you some of the stories about Munich and stuff. It's just, just beggars belief how he got out of that country alive uh, and also Brazil. But, yeah, you're, as you say, he was ahead of all these guys. And I don't think he gets the kind of uh, plaudits for being as far ahead of them as he deserves. I really don't. I think he, he truly was a revolutionary. Well, and that's where I was saying he's out of sync. It, it's yeah. kind of like, you know, the Beatles and Pink Floyd and Zeppelin. They all crossed each other's paths. Mm-hmm. But they were all influenced by other people. Yeah. It came a few years before them who are definitely far more obscure, far yeah. less known. And I kind of feel like, I don't know. I feel like he never fit in anything. I and in a weird way, that's kind of the allure. Like he was in technology, but wanted to be a rock star. Yeah. I mean, that was the reason uh, I, I was interested in why he walked away from McAfee and people always say, Oh, John, you know, sold McAfee in whatever it was, 92. He didn't sell anything. He just walked away. Benefited Mm. hugely from them being floated. But the reason he walked away was because he didn't want to be Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or (laughs) any of these guys, Richard Branson. And the the point he made was that if if you live in that world, you only ever have conversations about that world. You know, John was somebody who was much more comfortable with a guy in the street than someone in the boardroom. He couldn't stand corporate stuff. Therefore, once you've made your money, why not walk away from it all? And I think he did it because he just didn't fit in that world. He loved the battle of solving viruses and the, you know, the, the programming challenges. 
the the ancillary stuff of being a boss and uh, and being in the corporate world he had no time for that's there we go that's another contradiction that i yeah. think is very interesting because he is a pretty um stylistic dresser things like yep. that but he basically and i don't mean this meanly I, i'm kind of in myself he is white trash born in a small area of virginia which is the last thing you'd expect. You know, he was not born and raised in Silicon Valley. He didn't have doctor parents like uh, Bill Gates. He didn't have a lot of things. He literally was in a pretty rural area. You know, that that part of Virginia is pretty rural as as you get away from there. Not where you think. Obviously didn't fit in because you could tell from his intellect. However you want to go, the dude was a genius. Yeah. At least mathematically and things. And I think that might be sort of the attraction he had because you kept talking about how always he would find, you know, be it a prisoner, homeless or whatever. I think he was very in touch with his roots yep. and, and that, that darkness. And he, from what I've read, did, did not fit in with the Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Silicon Valley all the players who were trying to be the fastest, smartest, whatever, he kind of just said, oh, I already am smarter than all of you. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's a good assessment. In that, I don't know, I guess it goes back to that loneliness too. Mm -hmm. And do you think that may be part of why he was seeking them out is he felt like he could relate in many more ways with the street folk who felt lost and separated from society hundred percent than, um, than the others hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, John, I mean, John had been on the street. I mean, he'd had no money. He'd had money. He'd lost money again. He, 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 I think he was attracted to the danger of having no money and what it meant for your life as much as he liked the idea, idea of being able to bounce around in your life spending money left and right. He did like that side of it as well. But there's no doubt that the underbelly, he used that word a lot to me. I'm attracted to the underbelly uh, of society. And I think what he felt was that you get more of a real conversation from these people because mm-hmm. the subject matter is so real. I mean, going back to going back to the, uh, the AA story you touched on before, he tells a story about the guy who and the garbage bag. found his own wife chopped up in garbage bags in the garage. Uh, John said to me, "If you, you know, you hear stories like that, you you are going to think about your life and what you're doing, and that was a world away from the kind of conversations that he would end up having in a sort of boardroom situation when McAfee started, which he hated. And he and he told me, you know, everyone's puffing up, everyone's trying to make themselves look good. It's all superficial. I think he liked real, and if that meant talking to people in the street, that's that's what you do. And speaking of real." In your process, because I kind of am listening to your voice too, and this is what makes the book interesting, is mm-hmm. I like that you just made it a conversation. And yeah. It thrills me because I had an interview with the same guy. Yeah. And you've just had this extended interview in a fa- after a fashion, which oddly enough, I think may have been a better book than a biography. 100%. I've, I mean, I think I've said that. And also not better than an autobiography because mm-hmm. – uh, as I said at the beginning, you turn him loose. You, you don't know what you're getting. And it would be fun. It's a fun ride. That's a, it, you, might not, it might not be any, anything true. So it needed the kind of push and pull. And, you know, I, I, my ego is not in this particularly. Uh, that might sound strange for people. People might say, oh, come on. You, you, know, yeah, you, you, yeah. you know, it's really not. But I also knew that I was a, I was a, a player in this particular story uh, for, for obvious reasons that I've described before, it needed the, the pushback from somebody. It also needed somebody from a completely different world. You know, I'm in Scotland and younger, you know, done different things in my life. But I think he liked that. I think the sort of disparity between us really appealed to him. I was like the Scottish guy. And, you know, I think it kind of disarmed him because he's so used to dealing with people who are perhaps like him, uh, you know, and people will say, oh, that's just your ego talking. You like to think that you go on better mm-hmm. back a few than others. But, it doesn't really matter what people think that the evidence is there in the book. And I think there's tension and I think there's, there's actually moments of real warmth, which 
uh, I put down to my own feelings of what I felt about him because it was part of part of me a, a while where I felt almost like he had a paternal type input into my life. Uh, and that's not to decry my own father, who's, who passed away many years ago, but my own father was not like John McAfee. He didn't impart the kind of wisdom that John McAfee could. And I yeah. found myself feeling that. Uh, and I think equally John knew that. So I think there was a relationship there, which is quite important to the book. Uh, yes, the stories are there, but I think the relationship's part of it. That's really interesting. I would wonder if he was maybe imparting wisdom to you that he did not with Jen, for example, and probably was not capable of earlier in life. Like, you know, I, I, I could be wrong, but you know, being on the run, because I think your whole time with him, he was on the run, right? Oh yeah. I mean, in, so in there's a time he was under duress the whole time. Right, right. So there, there's a clock. There's a yeah. clock here. Mm -hmm. um, dare I say it's a deathbed confession. It, it, it's very weird, but I'm just saying that, Maybe he had matured enough, or, or got to a certain point in life that he could. No, I I, I agree. Some of I, think I said that at the beginning. I mean, he had had a couple of attempts to write books with guys, you know, mm -hmm. and he dismissed them as, "Oh, this guy was stupid," or "This guy didn't understand my life," and all these kind of things. It might just simply have been that the, he wasn't ready to tell the story. It might have been nothing to do with these guys. But I think when it came to our conversations at the time that they came, you know. I'm I'm one part of it, but I think the timing, as you alluded to there, is very important because for me, it felt like last will and testament. Right. But okay. That's we, we couldn't know that at the time, and I didn't know that at the time because I didn't know that six months later he would no longer be here. I did not know that. But even still, I felt that the tone of the conversations was last will and testament. Well, he was In on the way. run. Uh, he was on the run regardless. So, you know, he could have... Been a, I mean, he liked his guns. He could have mm -hmm. been in a shootout. There, there, there was a, a, there was always an, a, was a very real, yeah, very real danger at that point. And he also, when I kind of pushed him on it a little bit too, that you know he, he was rubbing their noses in it, and he, he liked to taunt people who were chasing him. I, I, I think he loved the chase at the same time that he claimed he didn't love it, but he did love it, and it would all yep. be in the same conversation. It's very um, surreal. One thing you did that I thought was interesting is I feel like you tested him and maybe I drew more importance out of this than, than it was, but it, it tickled my brain a little bit. Like you wanted to know if he was going to acknowledge Dennis yell or if he was going to play like he did everything himself. 100%. Like that, that was a significant, uh, it was a, it was a trap. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that at all? Because I, I felt like that was a... Yeah. Well, first of all, Dennis Yell, you know, rest in peace, was just a fascinating figure. I mean, I mean, you know, somebody who reviewed the book described, you know, how McAfee laid out the whole Dennis Yell thing and that whole, like a Terrence Malick movie. It was like he, he presented this picture of this guy who was, you know, undeniably very eccentric. But I knew in advance how important a role Dennis Yell had had in some of these early virus things. And not many people knew about Dennis Yell, but I did because I'd found out. Then when John told me, I, as you say, I was interested to know whether John would kind of brush De Dennis Yell aside and perhaps just say, yeah, he worked for me. He was one of the guys type of thing. John did the opposite with Dennis Yell. John turned all of the focus of the achievement and i can't remember which particular virus we're talking about it might have been michael angel no it was uh oh, I, the I brain brain virus brain, i think the brain uh he turned the entire focus on dennis yell said this guy basically ran the show he said he his code was immaculate without faults uh he described how you know you have a guy like Dennis Yell working for you, you can't start doing normal stuff. You know, you, you have to accept that your relationship with him is going to be absolutely bizarre. Like, you know, the great story you told me about turning up with a new component or something and have to lay it on this guy's doorstep. Because he won't answer. He can lay then when he's in his car, Dennis yells, parting the curtains and peering at him. And John's like, okay, that's weird, but whatever. Whatever the guy needs to do to get the job done. So 
You're absolutely right. You identified that really well. It was I was testing him. I wanted to know whether his ego would obliterate Dennis Yell from history, uh, and I'm very glad he didn't. Uh, he gave him he, the credit that he deserved. He also showed um, a surprising level of humility in that too. Like, yeah, like he knew that he had to bend over backwards to someone even more eccentric than him. Yeah, like. He had to put it on the doorstep or he had to do this. Like, if the guy said something was wrong, he had to drop everything yeah. and say, get that fixed or whatever. And that that's the only time I've ever heard him suppress his own ego to that degree. That's so I, I, I thought that was a really telling thing. That one and, you know, in chapter six, anyway, those, those elements I thought were actually they're concurrent. Because I would argue the AA had him at that point to yeah. where he was squashing his ego enough to where maybe that helped him interact with a yell. I think you explored that a little bit too. Yeah, I think he had no choice uh, in AA. I mean, I think, you know, he, he described, he, he uses the mirror analogy where he ended up in a hall of mirrors of looking back at just John McAfee. And he said, he was basically using it to say, you know, you're looking at your own life. And um, he said, you know, if you're in a jungle and you've got bullets flying over your head, it's really easy to be forced into thinking about your life, but it's much harder when you're just going through life as an alcoholic or whatever. And that was a really telling moment, as you as you say. And I think the Dennis Yell thing does run in in, in sort of parallel with that. Uh, and now that I think about it, yeah, I mean that was some of the only humility he ever he ever showed anyone in the story. He showed me plenty, which I was always pleased to get. You know, mm. that, that was one of the the things that surprised me uh, most. And you haven't read the, the entire book yet, have you? Not yet, not yet. Yeah. I'm not trying, dude. <laughs> no, 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 you're doing great. But there was a couple of times where all of a sudden he asked me a question about my life. You know? Yeah. And Like the guitar? Yeah, there was the guitar. He asked me about my, you know, my parents. And there was just couple of times where you're kind of taken aback because I'm not used to that kind of thing happening. When you're working with rock stars or sports people, you know, no disrespect, man. They don't care about you. They're not interested in you. They want to tell their story and they want you to do it. Mm -hmm. With John, there was a symbiosis uh, that I felt whereby I think he knew that the process would be better if he understood me to some degree. You know, sure. one thing, me understanding him, but I think he understood, and he's right, of course he is, because the more you collaborate, the better the, the story becomes. And I think he understood that. And to do that, he had to suddenly stop himself. And I don't think it was, I think it was forced. I think he genuinely was interested sometimes. Tell me about this in your life. Uh, you know, because he knew he had 25 years, he was 25 years further down the line. Uh, and it goes back to that wisdom thing. What can he impart to me? What can he tell me now that I will know in 25 years? I think there was a lot of that going on. True. You said mirror. And yeah. that triggered a thought I had um, earlier when I was reading it. Like, okay, one, I, I wrote down, I did the thumbnail and everything, and I said pirate. And yeah. uh, some people immediately pushed back. I don't know if he'd appreciate that. I'm like, I actually think he would. Because yeah. the traditional pirates did a lot of interesting things. Like they had the first unions. They had deals with their shipmate. If somebody was injured, they still got their share. So there's a lot of workers' compensation and things like that. It all came out of piracy. A lot of people don't realize. But they also believed in freedom, living their own life, doing whatever the hell they wanted. They were breaking away from the Navy, who was extremely oppressive, who had whipped the, you know, whipped the sailors, etc. All of that ties in with his worldview. Exactly. And I, I just think that he was a modern pirate, you know, yeah. just the philosophy or whatever, you know, like he's going his own way. He's going to do his own thing. And he even said, I rob robbing bicycles as a teenager, all, all this, you know, just not everything was necessarily, um, you know, socially acceptable, obviously. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I think a modern day pirate is good. But I was also wondering about the mirror. Do you think he was a troll? And by that, a troll in the terms he goes it's thrown about a lot but michael malice is probably the the best troll out there and he has stated himself that a troll is someone who will perform actions that make you respond in a way that shows what you really are at your core do you think he might have been doing a little bit of that to me and everyone yes yeah i think i said it earlier in the book certainly in the very early 
conversations I had with John, and I'm talking about shortly after the the gas station story, which has become sort of mythical. You know, people love the idea that I was in a gas station when I talked to McAfee the first time. But shortly after that, he 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 was testing me to see if I would be sort of super impressed by what he he was he was telling me these stories, and I think he was just throwing them out there and waiting to see what I would do. Would I be really impressed? Would I be subservient to him? Uh, would I be shocked? He was observing. It was the ripple effect. He was he was sort of dropping a pebble into the into the pond and seeing seeing what happened. Uh, and I think also, I think the the phone call not when he said he would call me was a test as well of the same kind, because he'd said I'll call you tonight, but he didn't. He called me when 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 he felt like it, not when I felt like it. And I think that was testing me to see whether I'd be okay with that. You know, am I the kind of guy that I'm that he's going to be able to call whenever he feels like sort of spouting some stories, or am I the kind of guy that's going to say, "Well, actually, John, you said we're going to talk tonight, therefore we will." So I I, I kind of read all that at the time, which uh, and I was only able to do that because I've worked with other people before. But you know, I'd never thought about it in the the sense of the the troll uh, that you've just described. I think you've got something there. I think there's some truth in that. Cool. It's fascinating. I'm, <laughs> speaking of trolls, um, I guess I should stop asking questions, Mark. You want to talk? Uh, Caroline says that I all I do is uh, I'm talking the whole time. I guess I can't ask questions. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I like your questions. I mean, to, just to just to, to explain, I'm so close to this now. Uh, it's been, you know, I talked about it a lot when John died. Then we had this really weird period where, you know, there was six months until the book came out. You know, in an ideal world, the book would have come out much sooner. Everyone said, "Oh, this book needs to come out next week," and I was like, "Well, okay, but the you know it doesn't work like that in publishing. You know, you've got to get go to print all that. There was a, a whole lot of stuff to go through." But so I feel like I've been living this the whole eight months, and I'm still living it now. I, you know, and when you say something to me like, "Oh, chapter six is great," I'm I'm so close to it. I don't remember what chapter six is. Sure, sure. but you know. Uh, I'm still understanding these dialogues and I still catch myself thinking about things that were said and trying to understand if there was some meaning that I missed Hmm. uh, along the way. And what, what that's made me think is that I think John is somebody who liked to throw breadcrumbs out in, in every sense in life. He wasn't somebody who was always explicit in terms of, you didn't go from sort of point A to point Z with a story always. He'd give you sort of bits. And I think he wanted people to figure out for themselves. Now, that might be because maybe the stories aren't true or maybe they were embellished or whatever, and he couldn't give all the components. But mm-hmm. I do think there's a part of him that liked to get people to think themselves. You know, and somebody somebody uh, mentioned to me that read the book, they said, oh, there was a buried lead in there about CCP drugs you know, Chinese mm. experimental drugs, which you haven't got to yet. Because uh, John told me about how he liked, you know, Chinese drugs that influenced behavior, that, that controlled behavior. You know, hmm. at the time I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Now that I think about it, it's like that that is really interesting given what's going on in the world at the moment. Uh, and I think there's a few of those. I don't know what they all are because, as I said, I'm really close to them. But the more people talk to me about this book and they read it, People throw up different angles to me that I've never thought about, and they're probably all right. You know, all these theories that people have that, you know, just like your one with the troll. I think there's lots of those in there, and I think that's the joy of this book. And I'm not just saying because it's mine, because I would enjoy it even mm. if it wasn't mine. I think it's one of these things. It's a bit of a mystery. It, you can't really figure out what it is. You can't really. You're never going to say this is what this book is. This is, and, and you're not going to be able to put a box around it. It is just this thing, and I'm quite happy to have a thing in my sort of discography or bibliography, <laughs> as it were. And I'm really happy it was with a guy like McAfee. It's like once in a lifetime, and you know, people will shout, "Oh, he 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 bullshitted you there, or he gave you that, he told you a story there." That's fine, absolutely fine. Don't have a problem with it. On that note, and this might be a straight process question, but obviously you had hours and hours and hours mm. of recordings. Yeah. 
how did you go about and say, okay, this makes the cut, this doesn't make the cut? You know, how, how did you go about, you know, selecting what you felt represented it? Or is it because it's a conversation you're sharing, this is what I heard and felt? It's both. Now, I should explain that. Remember uh, that at the beginning, this was going to be his autobiography. Right. Uh, so we approached it like that at the beginning, and we just had sections where I was just writing in voice. That's what I mm-hmm. do, write in someone else's voice. And then it changed, and it became this conversational thing. And all I knew was that I had to have a sort of linear narrative, which took people from Salem, Virginia, to in hiding in Spain. And how we got there was by giving enough focus on some of the important parts, making sure that we had a balance of the personal and the business and the salacious stuff. I think I thought got that about right with the women and stuff like that. Because John said to me, you know, my life is in many, many layers. You know, there's, you know, he, he told me that he judges everything by who he was dating at the time. And mm. I understand that. You know, he says, oh, yeah, that 1975, that was such and such. And he works everything out from there. Uh, so we could have talked for a whole book about his experiences with women. Uh, as it stands, the New York Post did a pretty good arc- article last week that covered it in 800 words. But mm. we could have done a whole book on his jobs. We could have done a whole book on his philanthropy and houses and his interests and all that. What I had to do is try and find... 85,000 words of all of it distilled into something that people would read and would be enjoyable and wouldn't get bogged down in one aspect of his life. Uh, And that wasn't easy because a lot of stuff didn't make the cut. There's a few things. It doesn't matter what they are because there's other things happening. You know, there's a documentary. They'll come out later. But there's a few things I'm like, damn, I wish I'd put that in. Uh, There's a couple of little anecdotes. I think that would have really added to the story. In now in retrospect, but you can only do what you're doing at the time. And there is well, nothing- if it's a bestseller, you can have the expanded revised edition too. There was nothing, I mean- <laughs> there was nothing I would cut out. That that is much more satisfying it is to say that there's nothing that I'm I wish I hadn't put in. Good point. So if it, if you leave people wanting more, then obviously that's yeah, yeah. I, I think ideal. so. I think you're better there. But what appealed to me most was the philosophy. I really enjoyed the philosophy most, and there might not it might be nonsense. But I was interested in John's views on religion. I was interested in John's views on the sort of push and pull of relationships with the opposite sex. I was fascinated by that. Uh, All of that stuff was what was most interesting to me. And I think a lot of people, when they knew this book was coming out, were really excited about, oh, there's going to be tons of crypto and there's going to be lots of sort of cyber security stuff and lots of. Thank you for not. Thank you. Lots of dead man switch stuff. You know, and. And I've explained it, and it's not not to be disrespectful to people who want that kind of thing, uh, and I, I understand why, but that was never the world that I was in with John. I was not in that world. I was in, I mean, I've, I've said, I've described it before as the sort of John McAfee, the man. Then you've got John McAfee, the meme. John McAfee, the meme, was this wild, this world of crypto and dead man switches and all that stuff, pooping through hammocks and all these stories. That's That's all fine. That's not the world I was in. I was in the world of his thoughts and feelings uh, with a narrative to drive it along. And I'm glad that was the way it was. I think I figured it out just hearing you say that. Things, you're looking at the world of who he is and not what he does. Yeah. And and obviously he did crypto, he did this, he did that. And you had mentioned some of that to reflect it, but you're trying to find the core of who is John McAfee as yeah. a human being or person. Yeah. As impenetrable as that is, uh, it's not totally impenetrable because there were moments as you've identified where we did get to something very profound. Uh, and I don't think that's been done before. Uh, but yeah, I was interested in the person uh, because it's the person that makes all the things that you do happen. That I, I want to know what it is that makes somebody do what they do rather than what they do. I mean, it's interesting to know what he did with Tyros satellites and all that kind of stuff, but I'm much more interested to know what he felt about Darwin and why reading Darwin in, in, in on a trip to Mexico was so profound. Why? 
And I got that from him. And to me, that was the important part of the book. What's interesting with your background too, is because you interview so many others and you have to make it a point of writing in their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, was he completely different than other people you have? And if so, how was he different? Uh, John was less linear than most people I've, I've worked with. Uh, there are some people who talk in a straight line. You know, if you ask them, tell me about such and such, such story, they'll, they'll go from point, the beginning to the end and they won't go off at tangents. And that's very easy for somebody like me because you're, you're not trying to gather up loads of loose pieces later. Uh, you, you, you have it all and you can build it. John wasn't like that. And that, w- that was fine because I enjoyed the tangents. They were massively exciting. And we went on tangents that lasted entire days where I'd have to say to him the next day, do you remember yesterday at like 11 o'clock we were talking about this? He's like, oh, yeah, I forgot we were talking about that. How did we get here? I said, well, I'll tell you how we get here. We need to go back to what we are talking about yesterday. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was really difficult. Uh, but what was great about John was that John had such a rich vocabulary and had such a great command over language. And I'm, I'm not saying that other people I've worked with haven't, but it goes back to that wisdom thing that really mm-hmm. appealed to me about John. I mean, it's a guy 74 years old. He's very well read. We used to talk about books a lot. It's not in the book, but you know, we used to talk about mm-hmm. Ayn Rand. We used to talk about Conrad, <laughs> coincidentally, given uh, he lived his own heart of darkness. But we talked about literature a lot, and it was very clear to me that John wasn't the kind of person that said, yeah, I've read this when I haven't. I knew he'd read stuff. Kerouac? Um, uh, yeah. I mean, across the board, John John was extremely well read. Uh, and you just can't buy that in terms of what it does for your your language, your, your, your way of expression, your nuance. He had all of that stuff. Uh, and not not just what he said, the way he said it. He had this, I describe it in the prologue. It, it was like he was on stage a lot of the time. He had this sort of grandiosity that he liked to, to put out there. And it, it, it was infectious. And my only aim was to try and recreate that in the written words. And there were certain things that John always said. Good God was one he always liked to say. I thought, well, I don't want to overdo, I don't want to overdo that in the, in the text because that would become predictable. But I want to make sure it's in there as well. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of occasions where we get the McAfee good God in there. And it was his way of sort of putting a sort of emphasis on something. Uh, there was a few others like that that he did. That I thought this has got to be in. So it was a case of just trying to find the balance with the way John talked, and it was just fascinating. Well, he's a character. I mean, oh. he is very much. In, he didn't. Um, I, I haven't watched that interview I've had with him for a while, but I mean, you know, the bug eye, the, the glasses, everything it was a costume, and just yep. he would his delivery was. Kind of over the top, it's so you're having so much fun, and you're like, okay, wait, 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 I gotta actually ask a question, I gotta push back here. And no, yeah, that doesn't sound right. I think you're you're a little full of it there, John. Yeah, <laughs> so but I was... mean, to his credit, he was fine with that. Well, I mean, any any sort of uh disagreements we had were never about the, the creative process, they were about the business side of things when things got a bit difficult. You know, for the re- if people don't know, I mean, one of the reasons our, our original deal fell apart was, was John wanted paid in crypto and couldn't mm-hmm. understand why publishers couldn't do it. And I, mean, and I mean, publishers did not pay in crypto and they don't pay in crypto, but they will pay in crypto. You know, it's inevitable. But at that time, they didn't. And he also didn't have an address that anyone could send a contract to. So I said to him, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and he got quite angry about that. But I don't think he was angry at me. I think he was angry at the world. that It just wasn't as advanced as he wanted it to be. But... On, on the creative process, we never had any disagreements about what he was saying or, you know, I pushed back, he accepted it, that I was doing it, and he either explained better or we moved on. It, it was always amicable. I, I Yeah, I can totally see it. And I, and the fact that he gave you permission. Yeah. Said, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It, it was like, um, I, I think he liked you as a person. and He could have easily said no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What was he going to do about it? And that was one of the funny things because I normally have a collaboration agreement with people I work with. You know, I will do this and you will do that and all that kind of thing. And we sort of eyeballed eyeballed each other. And he said, well, I've got 170 lawsuits against me. 
and <laughs> I'm in hiding. Are you going to come after me? I said, probably not. And I said, you can come after me if I don't do it. And he said, no. So what do we do then? We just carry on like this. He said, yeah, just do this. No agreement. So perfect. Kind of like a handshake. Oh, yeah. uh, Kind of old-fashioned. I, I deliberately asked about Ker- Kerouac earlier because I feel like he has more of a beat mentality than a hippie mentality. It's just a, something that's in my head. Agreed. But this has been fantastic. Um, For me, too. I really, really, really appreciate the time. And I know that I left a lot on the table, dead man switches and different things like that. But I really was trying to get into the psyche of the guy I interviewed and just kind of get your impressions of him as a person. And I appreciate your work very much of, you know, having to present him, but also be, have your own identity and not get swept up in it. I think this is unique for you too, because you're much more forward. Obviously you're not ghostwriting. You are the writer. John's gone. So now you're both representing him, but also yourself. And it's a, it, it has to be a, an interesting time for you. It's an interesting time, but I do appreciate this kind of conversation. Uh, this is why I enjoy it most. Uh, people who, who who have an understanding of John, I also under, like talking to people who don't, but you know, I do appreciate somebody who's got some experience with John and understands it a little bit and asks me these kind of questions. And uh, I'm, I'm very willing to do it with anybody who uh, who wants to know more about them. Uh, and you're right. It's an interesting time. Well, thank you very much. Now, people, you, you can find the book. It's No Domain, the um, tapes of John McAfee. Which John I, McAfee tapes. John McAfee, which I think is so funny because you obviously were not recording on tape. <laughs> but it it's just a term. I, I know that. But... No, but I'll, let me explain <laughs> it for, for people. Uh, and it's the last thing I'll do. It's one of these things that conjures up mystery. You, you hear tapes. You're like, what? What is that? Mm-hmm. You've got this image of sort of dusty, some dark, dusty room with tape turning. You think that's got to be interesting. So that was all it was. It wasn't tape. It was actually iPhone voice messages, which I moved to my Mac. But for the purposes of this, tapes work. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and, and you say, did you get that? Did you get it on tape? Yeah, I got it. it, it it's it's of his time too. So yeah. it's, a, it's a weird, weird thing. Very interesting. Everybody check out the book. I have a link to it in the description. You can also find Mark on Twitter and Getter. Um, one last thing about John McAfee. It's very significant. I think a lot of the stuff on the um, QAnon and whatnot is BS. John McAfee only would speak on Twitter. He ex- explicitly told me that I am only on Twitter not a website, not Instagram, nothing else. He would only talk on Twitter and then Skype. I interviewed him on Skype. Yeah. I'll second that one. John told me he never opened his Instagram account. So thank you very much. Thank you. Eric. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.